Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, we're going to be talking again about coronavirus and how different electric utilities have responded to it. Joining me for the call, because we are completely doing this virtually, as we are all social distancing, is Grant Kidwell, the ALEC Director of the Task Force on Energy, Environment, and Agriculture. Grant, thanks for joining the podcast here and also for setting up this great conversation that I'm sure our listeners will love. Happy to be here. And we also have Laura Shepes. She is the Senior Director of National Security at Edison Electric Institute, where she leads the EEI team, and she was responsible for the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council. That's ESCC. It might come up later. The ESCC convenes energy companies, CEOs, and federal government leaders to collaborate on cyber and physical security issues and solutions. Laura, thanks so much for calling in. Oh, well, thank you, Dan and Grant. Of course. And we also have David Botts. Leveraging over 20 years of utility experience, David brings significant industry knowledge in understanding and applying appropriate security solutions to address emerging threats and issues. He's a member of InfraGuard and serves on the SANS Institute Advisory Board. David, thanks so much for calling into the podcast. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here and uh, look forward to talking about these exciting issues. Yeah, thank you so much for taking some time. I know it's an extremely important topic for our listeners to understand and, and learn more about. To that end, can you tell us a little bit about the work that EEI does? Tell our listeners about it. Um, let them know what you guys do. Thanks, Dan. So I am part of the Security and Preparedness Division, EEI, the Edison Electric Institute. And EEI serves the investor-owned utilities across the United States and some in Canada. I'm a little bit unique in EEI in leading the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council team. That lets me work with electric cooperatives and public power and their trade associations. And we all work together to support and execute for the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, which Dan, as you noted at the top of, of the hour, is a CEO board, for lack of a better term. It's a CEO board that stands up and actually communicates directly with the federal government during times like this, during times of extreme stress for the grid. The point of that communication is to let the federal federal government know what we need in terms of resources and what we're seeing as the uh, disaster, whether it be a hurricane, a pandemic, a cyber attack, what we're seeing as impacts on reliability of the electric grid. One of the things that I would add just in terms of background information about Edison Electric Institute is that as the trade association for investor-owned electric utilities, Edison Electric Institute represents 62 companies at a holding company level. Those 62 companies are responsible for approximately 70% of the generation, transmission, and distribution of electricity that happens in the United States. But due to the due to the nature of the the grid and how it's divided in the United States, it's, it's kind of interesting. In the United States, there are, uh, there are approximately 
2,000 utilities that move electricity in the United States. Wow, so that's a lot. Could you explain a little bit more about how, um, I guess, you know, an individual utility would plan for emergencies in in a given region, and also how utilities may work with uh, state governments um, and the federal government as well for planning emergencies? Well, every utility, utilities are in in the business to to serve, and we have an obligation to serve 24-7, 365. Reliability is very, very important to our mission. So every utility has contingency plans, and those are, those look different, whether the utility is focused on generation, transmission, or distribution. But every utility, large or small, is obliged to prepare for normal minus one or normal minus two scenarios. And they frequently exercise those plans, and they might do that individually, or they might come together into a local, state, or regional, sometimes national-scale disaster planning exercises in order to test procedures that are, that are written down. Thanks for that, Laura. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'd actually ask for is a, a little edit here. When I said, uh, when I said 2,000, the correct answer is 3,000. So let me, let me just uh, change, change my words and folks can catch it at the end. One of the interesting things about the electric sector within the United States is that there are approximately 3,000 utilities across the United States. Now, most of these utilities are relatively small. They might have 5, 10, or 15,000 customers. But every utility has the responsibility and the understanding that they need to be able to respond to emergency events, natural disasters, whether they be range from hurricanes to tornadoes to uh, wildfires. There's a, there's a variety of physical risks that utilities have to contemplate and think about as part of their overall response plan. So to double down on this concept just a little bit more, um, how does the industry handle um, the possibility in good times and then also the reality in bad times of a reduced workforce? Well, the scenario that your listeners might be most familiar with is a large hurricane. So would plan for either an increase in workforce needs or a reduced workforce first by looking internally to see how we can stretch the resources that we have on hand. Can we call on contractors? What can we do to um, increase shifts for employees and contractors who are already at our fingertips? Uh, Then we would go into um, our mutual assistance networks. That can be in a state. That can be regional. Or some of your listeners will will have memories back to large-scale hurricanes like like Katrina and and memories of 
crews traveling across the country with with bucket trucks and, and other important equipment. So mutual assistance or mutual aid is, is a big part of how we think through uh, a reduced workforce. And as I mentioned, also we have longstanding relationships with contractors. So we also think through those resources. But this pandemic is presenting a unique circumstance and we are actually actively planning against a threat scenario for this pandemic that has this, the pandemic going for nine months. And we're looking at a 40 to 50% potential reduction in the workforce. Thanks, Laura. One of the other areas where we um, mitigate issues associated with a limited workforce is to uh, defer or delay certain discretionary activities. So, for example, there might be there might be a new build out going to to a, a particular area. Maybe there's a new subdivision under construction, and so in in times of uh, stress, as all of us are operating under the world today, there are certain discretionary operations that, that although important, they can be deferred. One of the challenges that utility operators have to work through is making that determination on, on what operations uh, can be deferred and what operations, frankly, really cannot be deferred. For example, when you think about things like wildfire risk mitigation, there are certain activities uh, related to vegetation management that frankly really cannot be deferred. Otherwise, there can be some pretty, pretty disastrous outcomes from that. And so, Alec, you know, we've had speakers from uh, agencies like the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency before come and talk about emergency planning. We've also had speakers from the National Electric Reliability Council. Can you talk a little bit more about how you interact with uh, that agency and uh, that organization? Right now, through the ESCC, the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, our CEO board is on the phone twice a week or an hour at a time with the director of CISA, Chris Krebs, and NERC, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, is represented by uh, their CEO, Jim Robb, on the ESCC. So those high-level strategic issues are definitely getting aired, discussed, and we're pushing for solutions with CISA on the phone and with representation from the Department of Energy, a very important partner for us, who is our sector-specific agency for disaster planning, cyber attacks, major grid reliability issues. So we're currently recording this on March 27th, right in the midst of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Can you talk to our listeners about what the utility response practically and, um, you know, what you guys have been doing um, in response to COVID-19? Dave, you want to start from the EEI perspective and and then I'll add some ESCC color. Sure. Um, The utilities uh, have been been talking about 
the arrival of the virus and things that can be done to get ready. And so across a number of different disciplines, including business continuity, um, continuity of operations planning, really overall reliability planning and analysis, utilities have been focused on looking at how are they situated with respect to supplies? How are they situated as it relates to uh, current labor availability? Are there things that they can do today in the near term to be more ready for, for this health storm rather than a hurricane storm? And so across the various disciplines, within the electric utilities from sourcing and supply chain, labor relations, human resources, customer engagement. There has been uh, planning and preparation underway to help people understand the new reality on, on the ground and to prepare for this event. Thank you, Dave. I'll, I'll supplement a, a lot of our ESCC efforts started in, I would say, mid-February. We began the staff-level interaction between the ESCC at the trade association, began to get into a battle rhythm of calls and communications with the Department of Energy and the Department of Homeland Security. We activated the ESCC in early March. And now we're in daily communication about the same issue that, that, that Dave surfaced. I think paramount on our minds is um, our workforce. We need to make sure that they can move, move around and do the essential reliability grid maintenance work. We need to make sure that they can get tested if they are truly mission essential workers, people who cannot perform their job remotely. And like many lifeline sectors or industries, we need more personal protective equipment for people who may have to go into harm's way, into quarantined areas. So that's a lot of the focus of this daily, hourly coordination and problem solving that's happening between industry and government. I will say a lot of utilities have pandemic plans on the books and that get exercised. And that goes back to SARS and, and MERS and, and some of the other pandemics that didn't, well, outbreaks that never bloomed into global health emergencies. But um, now that we're in this true global health emergency pandemic setting, a lot of those pandemic plans are a good foundation for the work that we're doing. We're going to come out the other side of this one with very solid uh, guidance built by utilities of all shapes and sizes from all across the country. And it, it will be something that um, I think will be a fantastic resource, not only for our industry, but for other lifeline sectors and for policymakers. And, and Grant here, just want to bring up, if we could chat about utility disconnects and late fees and how utilities working that, I'll go ahead and ask a question about that. Could you all mention uh, on the consumer side what utilities have been doing to help 
uh, customers that may be experiencing sickness or loss of their jobs? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that we're, we're pretty excited about is that all of the EEI member companies have announced a moratorium on customer disconnects during this situation so that even if a, even if a, a customer uh, is facing a, a, a job loss, that their electricity will not be cut off while the country is facing this, this crisis situation. That's a, it's a fantastic stance that the, the EI member companies have taken. Uh, we have also pushed very hard on the Hill in the uh, pandemic legislation for increased funding for LIHEAP, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, and I think had a, a really good um, impact on that. Uh, editor's note, check me because I have not had a chance to look at the legislation, but we did push really hard for more LIHEAP funding because that helps. The, the most needy in uh, and state, states really do need the money. Um, anecdotally, uh, you asked about what else are utilities doing? Many, many utilities are active participants in community philanthropy and have um, foundations and build roundup programs and many, many ways that they help give back. And if you do a, a, a look at social media or a sweep across LinkedIn, there is a whole lot of, of giving going on in the utility industry, giving to institutions that can help people through this trying time. So one of the big responses that we've seen uh, from governors is to close non-essential businesses. We've seen you know, California, Illinois, New York, and in my home state of Virginia, when where Alec is located, uh, we just had a non-essential business uh, order from the governor uh, closing those downs. Are utility workers considered essential? I, I imagine there would be. And are there uh, workers in the energy supply chain uh, that are currently not being considered by governors that should? Fantastic question. And this is a big focus area for the ESCC and, and for EEI. So we've been very heartened by DHS putting out guidance for states and local governments about essential critical infrastructure workers, ECIW, and absolutely many, many categories of our workers in the electricity subsector are included in that. There are even, there's a, a super special category within those essential critical infrastructure workers that we are referring to as mission essential workers. And these are the men and women. They might be employees, they might be contractors, but they sit in control rooms all across the country. And without them, the electrons don't flow across the system. Their jobs can't be performed remotely. By regulation, they must be in secure windowless rooms for eight to 12 hour shift. And so we are investing a lot of time to make sure that policymakers at all levels understand that we need to have 
special procedures and protections in place for them to allow them to get to their jobs, allow us, if needed, to sequester them in a safe and healthy manner. We need tests for these people. We need to make sure their workspaces and their new apartments and RVs and hotels near the job site are very clean. And we need to keep these folks healthy and on the job for the duration of of this crisis. So those are our mission essential workers. But you asked about people that are essential that it might not first occur to to qualify them as as essential. Um, Dave mentioned vegetation management. Absolutely essential in wildfire prone areas to make sure that, that that work can continue. Security guards at some of our critical sites, perhaps where we serve a military base, we have to have security in place and maybe even heightened security. So I'll stop there and let Dave chime in. Yeah, thanks for that. Fundamentally, Laura, you you really hit some of the some of the key points. One of the challenges with a uh, crisis of this nature that is fundamentally it's it's affecting almost every location in the United States. Some some locations more than others um, is not only the need to be able to allow the mission essential workers to uh, be conveyed to and from their their work location. Um, but we we kind of have interesting conversations about the next level. For example, suppliers. We need we need people to do things like supply food to the mission essential workers. So there, there are a lot of challenges, but we we really look forward to engaging with with governors and uh, Department of Transportation on on appropriate mechanisms to allow 